we're discussing Jacob. I think you start with your question, correct? I mean, eight and four over lunch. I think I'm right. What was your question? <laughs> well, just try to awaken it so we it can. Like, it was like, yeah, it was, it was like, what comes first? And if, when someone says something to you, or you encounter a situation, do you, does it elicit emotional response first? without reaching the irrational, rational intellect? Or does it pass through your intellect first and triggers emotion? I think everyone would agree that once the emotion has been stimulated, uh, 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 there's been a response, you can rationalise that and therefore change your emotion. So let's, let's, let's discuss the model that we began discussing in terms of the nature of when... when a lot of our life is, is, is spent interacting with the world around us. And then the question is, well, I think the ultimate question really is, is, is our life lived reactively or proactively? I think really that's kind of what choice is all about. Meaning a reactive life is there's a stimulus and you can predict the response that the given, a, given organism will have to the stimulus. That's called a reactive life. When Boche is offered schnitzel, his right hand will lunge forward and he'll stuff it in his mouth. That's like reactive uh, living. I don't even know about the hand, Robert. Oh, yeah. Why, why, why waste time with a hand? Just plunge. Um, that's a reactive life. And, and that's really, in a certain way, that forms the bulk of psychological um, science. Because in order to have, a, to have scientific discoveries, there's a premise that you can there's established patterns. The whole, the whole psychology is based on prediction of progressions, like numerical progressions. If this is present, if the stimulus is present, this reaction will occur. And therefore, a person that's been, um, been exposed to X, Y, and Z stimuli, he will have all these things present inside of his being. There's an assumption of, given the stimulus, this reaction will occur. In a reactive life. And that's why in certain ways, again, of course you can't be absolute with this because there's a lot of value, incredible value to psychology, but there's a certain element of psychology which goes against the notion of freedom of choice. The notion of freedom of choice is that given that stimulus, it doesn't mean that you'll react that way. You could react differently. And therefore, the whole notion of testing um, animals as ways of establishing psychological theories, if you're perceiving a human being as differentiated from the animal kingdom because of his capacity to choose differently to his instinct so then everything will be irrelevant or at least not binding when you enter into human realm now the scary thing is though and we have to admit to ourselves that unfortunately most of our lives are lived reactively we kind of land up responding to the same, st- same stimuli the same way, day after day, year after year. And therefore, when you actually try to, and I think as a result, you feel quite trapped very often, but when you try to evaluate your life, you have to admit to yourself that, well, most of my life I'm actually an instinctive animal. I'm not really a chooser. And a lot of the direction of an awakening in our, our voice of Hashem, service of Hashem, is to, is to reawaken our capacity to choose. It's not a given, even though we may have the capacity to choose, but it's not guaranteed that we'll be making choices. In fact, left to our default setting, we'll probably slowly but surely descend into a, to a life of 
very, very, very rare choice. And most of our life will be instinctive response to the given situation based on quite a complex set of different medias. So now, how does it work from an internal perspective? We began discussing the model that the Balatanya suggests of the relationship between the kind of the sensory input and the response that the inner self registers and then processes. How does that processing work? So the Balatanya says there's actually two ways it can work. And it's based on whether you're working within what he calls the nefesh bahamis, the animal soul, the nefesh is the godly soul. He said these are two separate, two separate selves that exist within a person. And it's a really revolutionary perspective. Because even those people who discuss struggle in terms of Yetzatov and Yetzahara, don't describe it as refreshingly as the Balatanya. A Yetzatov and Yetzahara translated into English would be a good and evil inclination, which presupposes that there's this singular self that's pulled sometimes in direction A and other times in direction B. But the self is essentially one, but conflicted. The revolutionary presentation of the Balatanya is that that's not how it works at all. It's not like there's a singular self with inclinations going in both directions, but there are two selves. And thus, by doing this, he's able to answer a riddle that he places for himself. The Gomorrah presents five levels of individuals in terms of a hierarchy. At the top of the hierarchy of someone which is called the Tzadik V'toivloi. Beneath him you have a Tzadik V'ra'aloi, a Beinoini in the middle, a, tzad- a Rosh V'toivloi and a Rosh V'ra'aloi. Translated into English, Tzadik V'toivloi simply means a Tzadik, a righteous person, and there is good to him. A righteous person, a person and there is bad to him. A intermediate level of person. A evil person who has good to him and an evil person who has bad to him. Now, the actual definition of those terms is also controversial. The Balatanya begins by bringing the Babylonian Talmud's explanation and this is what the Gemara says. The Gemara says that Tzadik V'toivloi and Tzadik V'ra'loi, a righteous person who has good to him and bad to him, is not referring to the good and the bad are reference to the situation in his life. A tzaddik is a tzaddik that has good things happening to him in his life. So he has, he has, he has health and he has wealth and security and uh, all good stuff. Tzaddik Viralo is a tzaddik that has a really tough life. He's sick and he's impoverished and just things go wrong. Similarly, a Rosh of a Toivlo is an evil person and everything just goes great. He's got a condo on the beach and he drives a Porsche, and a Rosh Averalo is a, is a Rosh that he's evil, but things really go awful for him, and he's in some type of derelict tenement building with no food on his table and suffering from gout as a marshal. Um, the Balatanya brings a chedik in the Zora cottage called the Raya Mehemna to argue this and to suggest a completely different understanding of Rosh Averalo and Rosh Averalo. Tzadik has good things happening. The, no, the, the Tzadik has good things happening. Would be like above the Tzadik has 
Is it because it's easier to be a tzaddik when bad things are happening to you? So, so the, the, like the, the Rishonim on the Gemara explain the following thing. The Gemara itself, that a the reason why good things happen to him is because his level is so advanced that he doesn't even need to receive any tikkunim rectification in this world. It's everything is like perfect. So he doesn't need to have a bad life to pu- purify him for the next world. And ironically, a, or not ironically, a rush of a Torah that has good things happen to him is that's his payment for the small few good things he did. And the, the person who's the ultimate Rasha, he didn't even do anything good that he deserves a good payment for. So ironically, the, the, good, the good that happens to the Rasha and the good that happens to Tzadik are exactly opposite. The one is the reward for his actions and the one, the one is just a consequence of the fact that he didn't do anything wrong. You know, what I mean is as follows. The rush who gets his reward in this world is kind of, that's his payback. So he's, he doesn't get the spiritual reward. Whereas in, in the case of the study, it just facilitates him to do even more and more good. Um, so that's the Bavli's, that's, the Bavli, that's what the Bavli says, the Talmud Bavli, the Gemara. But the Raya Mahemnes has a completely different understanding of what the Toivlo and the Raya mean. It translates it quite literally. <coughs> tzaddik for Toivlo means there's a Tzaddik, and to him is good. Tzaddik Viralo means it's a tzaddik and to him is bad, meaning he has internally inside of himself some vestige which is not good. But that vestige is totally and utterly under his control. Tzaddik, the ra, he has ra, but the ra is loy, it's to him. It doesn't affect or influence his actions one iota. A Rasha Vatoiv Loy is the exact opposite. He has good, but the good is completely under the control of his evil, and therefore it doesn't manifest itself. And the Rasha Rala, he doesn't even have a vestige of good. So on the two extremes, you've got pure and unadulterated goodness, and pure and unadulterated evil. The next levels up are is a slight mixing in of good or evil, and then in the middle, you've got the Beinoini. Now, the surprising definition that the Balatanya teaches the Beinoini is as follows, and it becomes confusing in differentiating between him and the Tzadik Viraloi. He says a Beinoini is a person that's placed in a struggle fighting between good and evil. But he never actually acts on the side of doing anything wrong. He never thinks a thought which is evil, speaks a word which is evil, or does a deed that's evil. But he has a temptation to do so. But every single time he beats a temptation. The reason for the Balatanya to ascribe the status of Bainoini in this way to this person is because he proved from the Gemara that in order to be la- get the label of a Rasha, you only need to do one Avera. What makes a person a Rasha? So the Gemara says, if you, do, if you do a sin, if you do something wrong, you're a Rasha. If you do Tshuva, then you're a tzaddik. Follow me? You do something wrong, you're not obeying what Hashem says, you're not in the, you, you, you've got a status of a rasha. You do something good, so you're, you're a tzaddik. But what happens if you haven't fixed up the, the bad thing that you've done? Well, then you're still a rasha. And when you do tshuva, so then you're a tzaddik. So he brings a Gemara, which speaks about Rabbah. Now, Rabbah was an Amoya. And Rabbah says, Going, I'm not a Beinoini, I'm a Beinoini. So Baye, his Talmud says, Rabbi, if you're a Beinoini, what chance do we have? 
But the Balatanya says, how could Rabbi think? If you understand that a Bainoini means someone that does, like, the classic interpretation is, he's, he's got half mitzvahs and half averas. In Hebrew, mechzaz chus, mechzaz avoynos. If you think that's what a Bainoini is, what? Rabbi confused himself with being a Bainoini? The Gemara says that Rabbi, this is the expression, leposik pumemi gersa. He never stopped learning for a second. And when the Malach Amavis wanted to come take him, the angel of death wanted to grasp him, it couldn't. Because his mouth never stopped learning to her. So it's hard to think that he's a, that he's a, he's got half of Averis. So the Balatanya shows that a, a Benoni is a highly, highly advanced state of spiritual development to the degree that a person still feels a struggle, but he never acts on it. And the Sefer Atanya is called Sefer Benonim. What's interesting is, Obviously, none of us can profess to be at that level. So why did the Balatanya, which seemingly is he wrote this, he wrote this work for, for the masses, who are these masses that he's appealing to? I haven't met one of them. So it's an important distinction to make when you're learning Tanya, and you know this distinction, Yaakov Mordechai. That even though the Sefer is called Sefer Beinonim, and the Balatanya describes the Beinonim that never does a chait, not a machshava, bedibur, b'maise, not in thought, in words or in actions, even though that's the level of a Beinoni, but that's not, that doesn't mean that to do the work of a Beinoni you have to be holding at that level. The book is addressed, the Sefer is addressed, the work that you have to be to be able to become a Beinoni. Now, he goes on further and says, in describing the difference between the two Nefoshes. So he says, in the world, now that we've got these two parts of self, two separate selves, we've got what's called a nefesh bahamis and nefesh alokis, a godly soul and animal soul. He says an interesting thing. He says, the essential location differs. The essential location of the animal soul is found in the left side of the heart. Whereas the godly soul is found in the, in the mind, in the head. Now that's not just some type of arbitrary and primitive description of um, yeah it's, 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 it means as follows that there are two origins for action the heart always describes your central location, that's where you are that's your, your, your feeling response to the given situation, of course it's a metaphor it's an analogy but the heart is the, is the substance of our being it what generates, it, it causes the blood flow to go throughout our body. The blood is the liquid, the medium whereby we are literally sustained. The nutrients that we will need for our continued survival are carried through the liquid called blood and it's, it's pumped throughout our bodies. Now there's two parts to the heart. There's a part of the heart which pumps the oxygen-rich blood to the body. And there's the other part of the heart which takes in the deoxygenated blood, pumps it into the lungs, fills it up with oxygen, gets pumped back into the heart, and then the heart pumps into the body. I believe that's the correct biological fact. Now, the part of the heart that gets the rich oxygenated blood is the left part of the heart, and from there it gets pumped to the body. The part of the heart which collects the deoxygenated blood is the right side of the heart. The Balatanya says that the left side of the heart is where the Nefesh Bahamis is most openly present and the right side of the heart is where the 
Nefesh Elokis can become manifest. It's not where its dwelling place is. Dwelling place is in the head. So, I'm sorry that this is becoming rather long-winded, but to try and cut a very long story, slightly shorter, the idea of heart as opposed to head means as follows. What forms the origin of my thoughts and actions? can go in one of two directions. I can begin with an external stimulus which creates a feeling which generates a thought. Jacob. Uh, um, so you can start off whereby you're exposed to a stimulus. The stimulus may be the delicious smell of lunch. It creates a feeling of hunger. The feeling generates a thought of how am I going to get the food? And you replan your day in accordance, <laughs> which then may spill back down into the heart and generate an action. But the origin of the action, of the thought, is from the external stimulus and it starts off in the heart. And in that situation, it means that that would be the way the Nefesh Bahamis works. The Nefesh Bahamis has, it has, it has feelings, it has thoughts, but the thoughts are a consequence of the feelings. Starts off in the heart, goes up to the head. The Nefesh Aloikis works in exactly the opposite direction. Meaning, its central location is in the head. That's where it begins, which means as follows. It may also have hunger, but the Nefesh Aloikis' hunger will begin like this. You understand from a perspective of understanding in your mind that it is important to eat, to sustain yourself, to do what you need to do, that thought will then create an emotion, a feeling, let's say in this situation, of hunger, which will then prompt your deed. So it's a completely different source and origin of action. The one of the origin of action is in the Nefesh Lokis, which means it's essentially above the human realm. It's essentially above the world of nature. It's not a response to a natural stimulus. It's a response to a spiritual stimulus. Whereas the Nefesh Bahamis is functioning in the natural world. It's natural, it's mundane. Stimulus, external, and then it generates a thought process to support it. Scheinfeld, Vosville's too. So, so when the, someone acting in the Nefesh Lokis, when they get stimulated, they, they think about, I mean, they don't just, like their, their, their head is preventing them from. Is there a flow? Like, how does it get directed? So, so, does it flow through the head? So, so, to describe them in isolation is easy. The problem is to describe them when we are not dis- dislocated human beings. And it's like, how's, what is, what's the, how are they en- enmeshed? Is, is that what you meant? Like, how does it. So, so I, I'm, I'm struggling through the sugya myself. I, I'm just like, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to work with this model and see exactly the interaction. In other words, like this. There's definitely... What are you saying, Teddy? I don't know. I guess the way it sort of makes sense to me is that it's always going to sort of flow through the head. head. It's got to hit the head at some point in time. And then then whether whether it's like just sort of go straight through without stopping or like the head can like stop it and then 
So you, you, you kind of, you almost quoted what the Balatanya says. The Balatanya says what can often occur in terms of the struggle, in the conflict of the Bainoni, is the heart reacts, shoots up a thought process to the head. When it gets to the head, there's a nephesh look, he's waiting to address that thought process. It's, whoa, whoa, do you really want to do that? And then dismisses it. Or, or doesn't dismiss it and just goes all the way back down. Depending on the level of the person and the control. So it first goes to the heart, then to the head, then back to the heart. Or it goes from the heart to the head and like stays in the head and it just doesn't happen. Or, nefesh lokis, it starts off in the head and goes down. From my knowledge I act, as opposed to from some external stimulus I act. So that's called the rule of the seichel. That I'm actually, I'm starting at a point of, of, of my location of action, my origin of action is not in reaction to the world. It's coming from a different, completely different place. But it goes to head? Or like, when, where does the battle take place? Does it take place in the heart? Or does it... I know I'm simplifying. The battle takes place seemingly in both areas. But the, the battle is won. The battle is won, let's say, if the nephesh... The way the Balatanya describes the battle being won, he says, if, is, if the, the battle, if the nephesh wins the battle, what it does is... It takes over the right side of the heart. Which means that even the thoughts, the response to the world, become sanctified. That when you react to the world, you don't react to the physical part of the world, you react to the spiritual part of the world. Example. Example. I can look at you. If I'm looking at you from a physical perspective, I can look at you and say, Ah, oh, there's Scheinfeld, he can bring me a glass of water. Meaning, I use you as a vehicle for my own selfish physical needs. Alternatively, if let's say I, I've won the struggle and I'm, I'll look at you and say, what can I do for the same you coming into my arena will prompt something which is, but it will actually be my heart will be prompted to think a thought which is totally compatible with my spiritual value system. That's called the rulership of the nefesh elokis over the nefesh behamis. Your actual reactions to the world won't become mundane, they'll become spiritualized. So the source of generation is still the heart. But it's this heart which is not yeah. pure. That's what you're trying to do. Ultimately, you're trying to purify the heart. Yes, Jonathan. It seems, Balatanya seems to be saying that the heart is not the source of but it, which means to say that the heart somehow has a, a, a pseudo safe which I think is, is right, but I think it, it seems to me that we're saying it wrong because the heart itself is a pure, is a pure reactor organ. There's a stimulus from the outside, I'm either angry about it. I have a thought, and, and, I'll, and how do I feel about it? So it seems that of train it. We can train ourselves to have a reaction. The cycle day. If I see something bad, I can train the way I feel about it that I don't like it. I can I, like like chocolate. I like chocolate my whole life, and that's the body training my heart to like to want it. But if I know that it's bad for me, I can then I can. It'll be very very hard. But I could I could I could say to myself that in 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 my heart I won't feel like I want it. 
So again, right. that, 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 let's talk about two different stages. The stages are where the head controls the heart, and the stage where the heart becomes ruled over by the head. The stage where the head controls the heart is like, I know this is the wrong thing to do, and therefore I stop myself from doing it, but the desire is still present. For example, people, people sometimes say, but if you're working from your head, you'll be so robotic in your actions. Because they don't understand that the true stage is integration. Not that you control by your head and then you act robotically, but you actually feel what's right. You feel what's right. As an analogy, as an analogy, I may know, I may know it's the right thing to pat Yaakov Mordechai on the shoulder to give him encouragement after he missed today's year. He said a tough morning and I want to give him encouragement. So I may, I may know it's the right thing to do. So I'll do that. But it could be I don't have a desire to do that and I don't care for him. But the knowledge doesn't, when the knowledge becomes integrated, so then because it's a value, I also feel, actually feel. Yeah, but then you'll, but then you'll realize that this, 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 this isn't talking, we're not talking, that's not a reactionary sort of situation. No, that's not a reaction source of situation. So like, what if like, if somebody insults you, right? Yes. And then instead of getting like you, like you're, you, you feel, you like feel about, the anger. You feel like you're about to get angry. You're about to respond, and then you go, your cycle hits and says inappropriate. Don't do it. You hold yourself back. When your mind is ruling over the heart, somebody insults you, and you just like automatically. It's like it doesn't, it doesn't bother me. Poor guy. Shame. How can I help him? So you're bypassing the heart in that case. No, you, you know, feel you're, you're going it. Going straight from the from the from the mind to the action. No, the heart. I don't feel like I want to do it, but my cycle knows I should do it. I'm completely ignoring the heart. Skipping this step. No, your heart, your, you, you feel. Not, again, you have to realize that thoughts will always be thoughts and feelings will always be feelings. Right. When, when the Seichel controls the heart, it doesn't mean that now you're only a thinking person, you're not a feeling person. It just means that the feelings that you have correspond to the ideals that you believe in. But you have a real feeling. So when a person insults you and you, you're there, it's not that you think it's the wrong thing to react. You don't feel in the slightest bit disturbed by the insult. You just feel compassion for the person, sympathy, whatever you feel for the person. No, right. I, I understand what you're saying. I'm not saying that the feelings aren't there. I'm saying that the, 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 the integration is when the, when, the heart will, when the heart will feel the thing, the thing that the mind wants, the, uh, right? And then the, then the other side is where, in spite of the fact that I'm feeling something, I will... I'll use my cycle to bypass that feeling. Correct. And go straight to the Correct. I'll use my f- cycle to bypass, and therefore I, I'll kind of I'll keep the, ha- the the heart under wraps. And that's the bayonet. You don't even feel the. That's that's the bayonet. The the control, the control, the before the purification process has has, has continued has has reached the thing. There's an opposition, but you manage to put the opposition at bay. And then the, then the worst part of that is it. If it, doesn't, if it goes straight to the heart, and whatever the heart reacts, it goes straight back down to the body, rather than... It always goes up to the head. always goes up to the head. It can't avoid the head. There's no such thing. No? Why? No, because it can't. Because you need to, it, needs to, it needs to have some type of... I'm hungry, I eat. That never went to my head. Well, what do you mean? How, what I, there's a piece of chocolate in front of me. 
You thought that in order for me to eat this, I need to put my hand forward and grasp it. There's always going to, it always has to be a thought involved. You can't avoid thoughts. You're not actually, you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not consciously weighing up the options, but there's. No. No, no thinking is mental activity. It can happen. You, you, if you if you slow down the process, you'll start to see. You'll start to be able to be, become aware of the different thoughts that you have. Uh, the classic example, right, is when someone offends you. Yes, you feel the 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 smarting of the of the of the emotional blow, and then all of a sudden you like. Then you can become very aware of your thoughts because you start to generate all these scenarios where you what you're going to say back to them and how you're going to do it. And so I'm making a distinction. I'm making a distinction between trained reaction and actual thought. To me, thought is a is a conscious awareness and manipulation, but a trained reaction just seems like. It, it okay, say this so in your definition, fine. But then, surely there's things that are inherent within yourself that, like, that, you, that, you, that you think about subconsciously, but then you react to it as, as human instinct. But those things, as much as, as much as yeah, those things you can't, you, you have no control over to begin with anyway. So, so that's now, now we're going to a whole, a whole new realm. In other words, this is a model, but this model becomes, we have to figure out how it works out in terms of different areas of ourselves and different areas of lack of freedom of choice because things are just too hard for us to do yeah and it's a personality kind of it's a personality model it doesn't work for, it doesn't work for the it doesn't work for the inherentness of being human the, the, the question is first of all the question is how much of the personality is open for change yeah exactly you're right yeah. and I think in, 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 in the model of Torah there's, there's pretty pretty much your every single person is Potentially perfect can reach a state of perfection. Um, that every one of his abilities, intellectual, emotional, etc., can be channeled purely in the direction of good. So hence why you said moving slowly. Because if you if you're moving slower, if you move slow, then you think slow, and then you're able to. Meaning, one of the advantages about deliberate action, deliberating. deliberating over something, is you can actually start to live a life which is non-reactive. Correct. When you become aware by slowing down, then all of a sudden you see, oh my gosh, there was this whole stuff that I was doing, and if I would, if I would only slow down, I would have seen that I had been doing it, and I wasn't aware of it, hundred percent. Reactive living is often, and this is actually what Mr. Shrim says. He says that. Often, many of the stupid choices or destructive choices we make is not because we want, on a deeper level, to we want that. It's because we never just stop to think about what we were doing. That's what it makes a hard uh, poison, like making everyone rush too busy yeah, too to be busy able to think. To, to we'll be too busy to be able to think. I have a question. How, how, how does this model change when it comes to, to Shabbat? You say that. Somebody that you're given, you receive an extra soul. So how, how does this? Uh, That's a great question. How on Shabbos? What happens with your extra? That's a great question. Unfortunately, we just ran out of time. <laughs>